Welcome back, everyone, to yet another episode of Going for Two, presented by Homefield Apparel. This is the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am the publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown. I'm joined here by my colleague and co-host, Brian Fisher. And uh, Brian, we're, we're chatting here. We're just about done with the college football season. Um, the, the, the dust has finally settled. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, especially because I, I was just out at the Rose Bowl, seeing your alma mater, uh, Storm back in the second half, uh, another thriller. Uh, always great to be at the Rose Bowl. Let me tell you, if if you've not been, I haven't the- been. I got I got to go next time. I've yeah. never I've never seen the 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 sunset that everyone waxes rhapsodic about. Uh, I've, I've, I've only been to Southern California once. I'm, I'm sure. It was oh, man. We, well, we, we got to get you out. I mean, this, yeah. was, this was Rose Bowl number. I, I counted it up, uh, before this and Rose Bowl number 14 for me, you know, I blessed to have, have a career that uh, has been able to take me to so many, but, uh, another great addition to the list of, of, of the ones, uh, the last couple of years, I mean, you go back to Georgia, Oklahoma, uh, obviously Penn state, USC. I mean, just the, the Rose Bowl for as much as we give it grief for kind of holding up college football playoff expansion the game has delivered when it comes to the actual product on the field on new year's day so i i I don't complain as much uh when i know uh, people throw the rose ball under the bus uh because that that setting is special on new year's day and the game itself has has lived up to its billing as well i i gotta be honest with you i didn't watch the whole game i watched the first eight minutes and i saw utah just absolutely kicking ohio state's ass and like, remember, Ohio State is going into this game with like 62 scholarship players. This is, I, I spent a bunch of time doing Salt Lake Radio up here, talk, you know, talking and listening about how this is the biggest game in Utah history. And this would be this big storybook ending. And I'm just like, do I want to sit here and yell at my TV for three hours and be like angry about a game I'm going to forget about in three weeks? Or do I want to play Metal Gear Solid or read a book? And so I disengaged. And then I started getting text messages like around the early third quarter, like, no, you need to go put the game back on. And I'm glad that I did because the the ending was wonderful, and I and uh you know I saw the highlights later, and I saw some of the plays that I missed. It was a, a wonderful game, and I think the moral of the story here is uh, you should always watch football on TV, even if it makes you angry, because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen, and then we have one game left, one game left in the season. And uh, I know some people are, are excited that uh, things are, are finally wrapping up, and we can kind of move to to other things. But um, you know, a little bit of sadness, you know, going back uh, from a, a season that stretches back to August uh, to, to think that we're only a couple of days away now from the national title game, and, and the end being here, uh, it is a bit tough to uh, to deal with uh, for, for those of us who are so invested in in this system. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about you. I I typically feel kind of conflicting emotions around this time of year. Because on one hand, if I'm being honest with you, there's a sense of like relief, yep. like okay, now I, I can plan Saturdays a little bit differently. Uh, and, and it's different now because I don't watch ten hours of football on Saturday like I used to when I was at Vox, and so it's, it's I'm not quite as fatigued at this time of year. But um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm most interested in are more off season-y kind of articles, and you get a chance to have argue about different things and move on. But also, football's fun. We like watching football on TV. We like talking to people about football. And there's, it's, it's, uh, we kind of mark the passage of time by football seasons. And, and, and so with one wrapping up, there's some relief. Yeah, there's a little bit of sadness. And uh, by April, I think we'll be jonesing for it again. And then by August, we'll definitely be ready to, to binge. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to, that we're reaching a conclusion. Uh, I wanted to bring in a, an old friend of mine to talk about not just this football game, which we'll, we'll get to here in a little bit, but also about some of the other things that were happening during that Rose Bowl game that had nothing to do with the football game um, and what's happening off the field with college athletics, uh, uh, particularly college football on a number of different levels. I, I want to bring in my old buddy, Alex Kirshner um, of Split Zone Duo. He writes uh, for regularly for Slate and 538. He was my old colleague at, at SB Nation and Banner Society here for a while. And I, I want to talk to Alex, not uh, yeah, about this football game, but also an area where Alex knows a ton about, which is the labor movement and what's happening with the NLRB, what's happening with athlete unionization and athlete empowerment. Um, why don't we hit this big button here and bring Alex uh, on right now? Alex, it's always it's always wonderful to be able to spend a little bit of time talking to you. Thanks for hopping on today. Well, you have so kindly stopped by Split Zone Duo's house so many times that I am honored to be able to return the favor. I mean, I, I basically, I mean, that's, that's, I basically consider that a sister show at this point. Our, our audiences are all, are all, are all part of the, the greater nerd family, and no which, doubt. which I say with love. I, I wanted to talk to you today because I feel like there's a couple of other issues independent of the actual championship game in a couple of days that seem particularly in, in your wheelhouse. I'm wondering if you had a chance to see what was happening in Ohio State Twitter 
in the middle of the Rose Bowl while Ohio State was mustering this uh, their, their gigantic comeback with uh, former defensive back Marcus Williamson. I did see that Marcus Williamson talked about his experience playing for Urban Meyer and about some of the things Urban Meyer said to him, some of the PowerPoint slides that were displayed, Marcus Williams said for him. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this this was a notable, I think, for a couple of reasons. You know, one, because Ohio State, along with Oklahoma, seems to be one of those schools where everything is just happening all of the time. And, and this has been a I think a rare school where I, I think three or four different athletes have now gone on Twitter rants, like during games, uh, uh, complaining about things with the program. But this, I think, was also notable because it was one of the more, I, I think, concise breakdowns of how an athlete of color uh, may not feel completely supported at a PWI or at, at a major football institution. Um, and uh, the, the, the response was was really kind of, I think, complicated with the new Ohio State community because you had obviously a lot of people were feeling very defensive that how could you call this program racist? So many uh, successful you know, black players have come through here and a lot of, of, of black athletes who played at Ohio State came back and said it wasn't racist. And some, uh, including other members of the team, were, were validating what he was saying. And I, I wonder, I'm curious, Alex, what, what you think? Is there anything here that seems surprising to you? How, how do you think this kind of all fits in with the the, the athlete um, activist movement that we're, that we've been seeing these past couple of seasons? Well, it's not surprising that Urban Meyer would do something like that to me. That tracks. And so I, I totally understand. And when I saw Marcus Williams tweet that Urban Meyer had used a, an image of Trayvon Martin, the way that Marcus Williamson described, that totally tracked. I would believe that Urban Meyer would say just about anything to his players in an effort to get them to conform to Urban's style of management and leadership. And a lot of ink and audio has been spilled in the last couple months about how managing players that way gets harder when those players have more agency. And that became a real problem for Urban Meyer in the NFL. So no question. I think that the entire episode on, if you can call it an episode, but the entire discussion on Twitter uh, around these tweets by Marcus Williamson exemplified, and I think you pointed this out too, Matt, and I think you've been very smart about this, some of the limits to the, or not even limits, but just some of the sort of heterodox realities of the player empowerment, player agency movement, whatever you would call it, which is that it sounds good to imagine that every college athlete is finding his voice and and recognizing their power to affect change in college sports and to take people like Urban Meyer to the woodshed and expose them for what they've been for, for many years. But for every player that does that, there's some number of players that thinks that Urban Meyer's management style was great and that Urban Meyer cared about him, which he might've, and that things don't need to change so radically as someone like Marcus Williamson might think they should. And you can probably guess if you followed my work or either of your gentlemen's work over the years, where we might fall if we were determining what the next best step should be in college sports to make a more equitable and fair and, and productive system for as many people as possible. But where it gets complicated is that the actual players do not all think the same way you or I might. Yeah. So either, either of you, tell me if you think I'm, I'm misreading this. And I actually, I did reach out to Marcus and I also uh, filed a FOIA to Ohio State to try to recover the, the PowerPoint in question. Uh, some Urban Meyer denied using it. I think so, some athletes have said it didn't happen. Others have said it happened in a freshman-specific orientation meeting, so that's why maybe Urban didn't see it or other athletes didn't. You know, if it existed, it's probably somewhere, you know, we'll, we'll try to get it. But if tell me, if, tell me if, I'm, if I'm reading this incorrectly or if this is not something that is possible. Somebody like Marcus, and I've seen, I've seen other former athletes make this exact argument, say, hey, look at this. I'm providing a, uh, a lot of financial value in this system. My own physical health is sometimes put at risk. My value as an individual is subordinate to my value as an athlete in a system of interchangeable parts. And because the, the, the system disproportionately extracts value from young black men to white coaches and white administrators, this system, in, I feel, is racist, which might be a different thing from saying, I think Urban Meyer or I think Ohio State is racist. And I imagine that if you are, you know, 
calling somebody racist is a is is a is a charged accusation, and I, I I would imagine a lot of people, even people that might hold racist beliefs, would go, no, 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 no. You know, it's like the, one of the worst things you could say to somebody. So I can understand why athletes, both white and black, might feel defensive, and and try to 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 uh, come back over that exact point. Well, maybe not denying or arguing with a lot of the other substantive things that Marcus said. Does 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 that make some sense? Certainly. I I think that a lot of people, and especially, especially though not only a lot of white people, recoil very viscerally at, oh, you're talking about me? Like I'm I'm the bad guy. And the I guess where it gets complicated and where I would defer to people more knowledgeable than I on these issues is um, you know, these are systematic issues, systemic issues, but systems are made of people. Uh, and you know, in the case of Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was the system at Ohio State, and Urban Meyer's entire deal, the entire thing that he has staked his legacy on, his reputation on for years, has been culture, culture, culture. I think I have the book somewhere around here. You know, he's he's obviously is or was kind of a football genius with the shotgun spread to run offense, and I'm not saying Urban Meyer can't coach ball, but like the thing Urban Meyer has always sold about himself is system, culture, culture, culture winning, winning, winning. And so I have a very hard time personally from afar, though I understand why some of his players might want to defend him, decoupling a system at Ohio State being taken by its black players in some cases as being insensitive to them or racist and saying that's not on Urban Meyer because Urban Meyer is the system. That's his whole thing. Yeah. What do you think, Brad? I think obviously this is something that it comes from the top down, right? Urban Meyer runs his program from Urban Meyer on down. And I think we've seen numerous incidents, even going back to his time at Florida. Uh, you know, this is something that continually pops up. You know, Alex mentioned mentioned the culture. It's pretty clear that the culture at uh, at Ohio State was rotten. You, you have this this incident, which is, uh, you know, one of several. You go back to the Zach Smith saga. You know, I think that's another thing you can throw into the pile that uh, that, that are serious issues that I think, um, you know, if you're a coach, if you're an administrator, you've got to start looking into at your program and be like, look, these incidents are happening elsewhere. And yes, they're happening at high profile schools like Ohio State and with Urban Meyer, but this, this could happen anywhere. You know, I think that that is to me the, the one thing is, uh, we, you know, if you're, you're an administrator out there, you're a coach, you got to kind of re- double down on looking internally at what is happening within your program. How are you teaching these athletes? Because it is all changing that that relationship with power you know, has, has changed significantly. You go back a couple of years when kind of social media was in its infancy. Uh, you know, it used to be to some of these guys to get recruited. You have to go to, you know, go to a recruiting rival at rivals or two, four, seven, and you'd have an article and that's be your, your top five. Now you can just kind of tweet it out. That relationship has kind of been taken back slowly by these athletes from, from a high school level. And uh, I think, you know, administrators have, you know, and, and coaches too uh, have struggled to deal with that, that that changing relationship with power. And uh, you know, certainly Urban, uh, from from both the the college perspective and the NFL, has has struggled probably more than any at, at a high profile uh, standpoint. But uh, you know, to me, that is something that is is going to be a continual theme over these next couple of years is that changing relationship with who ultimately ha- has the power, both from a public perception standpoint and from an internal standpoint on the field and off the field uh, with these programs, because it, it's very slow shifting and, and I think we're going to see some even additional acceleration back towards the athletes to where they, they control everything now and and I think the, the coaches that uh, embrace that are, are going to certainly thrive and the coaches that uh, want to kind of dig their heels in uh, we're going to see more of these type of stories uh, from from around the country you know so you, if you needed another example of how much that power dynamic has shifted we, we just saw an athletic director and honestly one of the most respected most influential, most powerful athletic directors in the entire country put out a press release essentially begging his star quarterback not to leave. Um, and then weirdly, the program signs a, another quarterback like two hours later. But like that, you know, forgetting whether that was like permitted, could you imagine Bear Bryant doing something like that or Daryl Royal doing something like that or, or even Steve Spurrier? No, like Steve's like, well, bye and, and, and go and move on. It, it, like that, that dynamic right there, unheard of. Um, Brian, you, you mentioned another reason, which is part of why I wanted to bring Alex on here to begin with, that this is all part of an evolution of, of power shifting from institutions and from coaches into, into, into individual players. And Alex, you follow the NLRB and follow some of the legal and labor side of this more closely than almost anybody here that I know. I know that we saw 
um, the NLRB put out a memo in, I think it was like no, October or November that said, basically said like, come file a complaint athletes. We, we think you're misclassified. Has anybody done it? Because I, I think the only per, only entity that I know that, that filed a complaint was uh, were people who are not athletes. And I don't know if there's any momentum on the athlete side right now towards kind of changing that. Have I, have I missed something? No, I, I don't think you've missed anything, Matt. It's a good point. The only group of college football players that has ever, and college athletes at all, in fact, that have ever seriously progressed something like a union drive or a desire to be classified as employees were the Northwestern football players led by Kane Coulter and company in the middle of the last decade. That's it. it this is still, it's not quite uncharted waters, but it's lightly charted waters. And it's an important thing to, to remember in, in all these discussions. There are a lot of political, legislative, judicial fights going on right now around what the rules should be that govern college sports. The, the athletes themselves have expressed very little unified voice because there are really not a lot of unified collective vehicles for them to do so. You know, you've heard plenty of athletes, you know, either supporting NIL rights or availing themselves of NIL deals. And there was a, a good bit of noise made by college athletes in the summer of 2020, right after the murder of George Floyd and in the middle of the pre-football season, first pandemic summer, about recognizing athletes' contributions to the system, about promoting racial and social justice in college sports, all of it, as well as a medical component in some cases, uh, like with the Pac-12 football players who made some demands of Larry Scott. But it didn't really go anywhere. And I think that goes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier, which is that actually pursuing the legal avenues to materially change college sports in ways that go beyond name, image, and likeness is going to at some point require someone, a, a group of players on a specific team, or in a specific conference to take a plunge that really only one team has ever tried to take um, and to actually go and, and test this case at a venue like the NLRB. Let me ask you a quick, dumb procedural question. Um, if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not Mr. Politico, but if I'm reading the tea leaves right now, it seems like right now there's a pretty good chance that the Republicans are going to take the Senate and, and maybe, maybe, maybe probably the U.S. House. Um, which would change the way that maybe federal NIL or federal college athletics le uh, legislation might go, certainly as far as, as being pro-labor is concerned. Yeah. If the Republicans take the White House, they get to, you know, at the next election, they, they can appoint a new NLRB chair, right? Like there's no guarantee that any memo that's out now, could that be revoked in three years? So the NLRB is a couple of different things to your procedural point. There is a five-member actual board that goes and votes on these issues and really has the effect of creating labor law that applies to the private sector in the United States. Those members serve five-year terms and they typically serve them out. There is also a general counsel for the NLRB who is a political appointee like the board members are and who sort of acts as the chief investigator when the NLRB investigates things okay. and who can write memos and opinions that are thought to carry a lot of weight with NLRB regional directors in places across the country and with the five-member board. The memo that came out a few months ago uh, about college athletes in some situations being employees was a memo written by that general counsel basically saying, come and vote on this at the board, You know, come and push this to the board so that the NLRB, the five-member board, can actually affect some change here or at least weigh in on whether or not change should be affected. Your point about if Republicans could just derail this progress, that's a little trickier. I think the answer is maybe. Uh, the president appoints the actual members of the five-member panel and also the general counsel. Joe Biden, the day he took office, did something that was unprecedented, but that a lot of people in the labor movement loved, which was he shit-canned the general counsel for the NLRB, who's this guy named Peter Robb, who was vociferously anti-labor, um, an absolute enemy of organized labor, and I would say labor sort of in general. That's, that's just his thing, um, is that he is very much a pro-management thinker, uh, and Biden fired him, despite the fact that his term was not up. 
uh, and that was considered controversial. That you you know could you fire a general counsel of the NLRB? Excuse my cussing, by the way, on a podcast. No, listen, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I, I dropped a swear word on this podcast, but he didn't have, he didn't do it in a dollars. dignified way. Is my point? He said you know he oh. demanded his resignation, and he and the guy said he wouldn't give it, and Biden okay. said you're out of here. Okay, and he so, so shit canned is, is the is the correct labor term it, to use, right? That's, he that's replaced him on an interim basis with Peter Orr, uh, and if you remember that name, that's because Peter Orr actually was the general counsel, or excuse me, the regional NLRB field director who initially greenlit the Northwestern Union petition right. five, six years ago. Uh, now a woman named Jennifer Abruzzo is in that job on a permanent basis. And if a Republican wins the White House, Joe Biden has laid out the president that she could be fired on the new administration's first day and that perhaps a new general counsel might rescind the opinion, the memo that she put out a couple of weeks ago. There would be president for that too. Um, because after the Obama administration's NLRB general counsel put out a somewhat similar memo in 2016 or so, this Peter Robb fellow, who was recently fired, when he came into office, he rescinded it. So it has been a game of political football, no pun intended. Um, Jennifer, Jennifer Abruzzo, the, the current general counsel, and I know we're very in the weeds here, but this is going for two, so I think your listeners yeah. are okay with that. I asked her, I, I interviewed her a couple of times around the time that she wrote this memo, so do you think that this is just going to be unwound when you're no longer in power? And she said no. She said that she thinks this will follow other labor law issues um, where they've managed to kind of become entrenched over the years. And she pointed out that a lot has changed, even politically, around college athlete rights since the Trump NLRB general counsel rescinded the previous pro-student athlete or pro-athletes or employees memo. Uh, so I guess we just have to see – that was a really long way of answering your question, which is that uh, it could be unwound, but there is skepticism that it would be, at least by the, the woman who is sort of leading this charge right now. And, and, and not only are there structural issues on, on that side of the fence, I mean you look at the, the football players themselves. You know, you have – obviously you have to come from a private school to kind of get this this movement off the ground. There are fractures within teams that you're going to have from your defensive back room to your quarterback room. And, you know, I think there's there's class divisions, you know, between your freshmen and your seniors. And, like, to get everybody kind of on the same page, to get something off the ground, I, I think structurally within college football, within these team environments themselves, I think that's difficult. And then you throw in one-time transfers where you got guys coming in and out. You have various, you know, kind of. Uh, we, we've talked about roster management at times in in, in uh, on this podcast and how difficult that is in this era now, uh, especially when you throw in name, image, likeness, and everything on it. It's just a different team environment, I think, from even you know a couple of years ago when 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 Kane Coulter was was pushing this in Northwestern. So maybe this is outside your wheelhouse, Alex. But wouldn't it be if I'm just, I'm just I'm just spitballing? Wouldn't it be much easier to try to go get like the Harvard basketball team to push this issue rather than a college football team? Because you can get just I'm just thinking it's hard to get yes. 85 people to agree on what to get what pizza to get, let alone what your labor classification should be. 12 should be easier. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and I think that if there is a smart kind of advocacy shop or law firm that really wants to create a test case here, uh, and, and I think a union, a national union would probably be involved. Uh, you want to go to a small sport at a private school. Uh, private school is pretty important because the NLRB's jurisdiction does not extend to public sector workplaces. What are most college football teams representing state schools? Uh, now, that's not to say that the NLRB is irrelevant to public schools. I think there is a, a lot of thought, including on the part of the general counsel who wrote this opinion, wrote this memo, that there'd be a snowball effect and that if some private schools began to take it, athletes at those schools began to take advantage of employment recognition um, or to negotiate collectively that public schools would have to follow suit just to keep up in recruiting. I understand that argument and that might very well be the case. But if you're trying to actually get a test case in front of the NLRB again, uh, you go to a 12 or 15 person bargaining unit at a private institution and you try to organize that team. Uh, I think that's a, exactly what national unions that might be interested in this should be doing uh, if they want to create an opportunity for the NLRB to follow through on what the general counsel believes it should. Is there anything short of out-and-out unionization 
that you expect or, or think could happen on the athlete empowerment or athlete, I guess, labor front over the next couple of months? I, I know that a lot of the protests that we saw over the summer were, 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 were uh, targeted directly to, about after George Floyd and were, were racial justice uh, or, or, oriented. Do you think that there's a possibility that we'll see some about something else like that this spring, something more organized, something attacking a different part of the experience? Have you, have you heard anything? No, I haven't. And I think that it is likely that the next I, – I, I think the next frontier that I think a lot of athletes are actually engaged on because at this point they have representation uh, and they are involved in sort of this, this new burgeoning marketplace is that maybe athletes will exert some pressure on what an ultimate national NIL policy looks like. Um, because I think it's increasingly difficult to ignore their voices now that they have struck up so many of these deals. Uh, and I think that you know the kind of thing that you might see uh, is athletes, at least some who are situated comfortably, being able to have a chance to testify before Congress the next time there is an NIL hearing um, and go out and say something like, hey, I really should be allowed to um, do a deal with this gambling operator because if Maryland and Colorado are going to be partnered with PointsBet, then why can't I go and get in on some of this fountain of gambling cash that is in sports right now? Um, I just think it's harder to ignore their voices, given that they are at this point already in this marketplace and that they are connected uh, in, in the business world in a way that they weren't before because you can use agents for these things. I think that we should be numbered in the days of hearings about these things that include like seven witnesses and none of them are college athletes, I think. Because I think that people have understood it looks bad, dude. But I don't. I don't want to keep watching them. That was, I, that, I can't watch them anymore. Those, I, I've, I've watched a lot of things that suck as part of this job, and as well, I, I'll say this: as bad as the con- federal congressional hearings were, the hearings at the state level were worse. Like that, more than Terrible. anything else in my adult life, is like maybe I should become a libertarian. I maybe, maybe I mean, these are not groups that I trust anymore. But I, I do think that the next step uh, is someone to test this thing out, though. At the NLRB, yep. the next the next big step. Uh, you know, that's, that's the white whale. And, and there's kind of a natural progression point, right? Where the O'Bannon case took one antitrust whack at the NCAA's model and college sports model in general, um, dealing with caps on things like cost of attendance. Alston went after caps on education related benefits, so to speak. Um, You're getting closer and closer to the thing that, that most athletes uh, I think would really like to see be uncapped and that being outright compensation. And uh, I, I do expect that someone is going to take up that case. And uh, if you read any of the opinions, uh, especially Brett Kavanaugh's concurrence in Alston, it's pretty hard to think that the justices might not look favorably upon plaintiffs in a case like that. So I think that's coming down the pike too. You know, we often say that sports is a reflection of society, and, and I think you know the labor movement itself is is going through some you know pretty pretty big changes. I think in the last couple of years, and and certainly you see these unionization pushes. Um, maybe most famously with with Amazon and what happened down in Alabama. There, there's other pushes Starbucks, along those yeah. lines uh, that are happening really across the country right now. What is what is maybe the state of the labor labor union and, and labor market uh, right now that you see maybe spilling over into effect and maybe pushing uh, the, the college sports you know, athletics complex a little bit uh, further along uh, that maybe were not present a couple of years ago? I think the biggest thing that could really tilt the scale here is the PRO Act, which Democrats in Congress uh, and Biden supports this as well have been pushing for for a while now. Uh, that is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would do a lot of things that would essentially boil down to making it easier for employees, for workers to form unions um, and to bargain collectively, and not just employees, but I think also um, expanding, you know, maybe in, in some respects, making it easier for independent contractors and others who probably wouldn't necessarily apply to this college sports debate, but also could be could be included in something like this. I think that if that were to pass, that would be a big deal for a hypothetical down-the-line union effort in college sports. Um, there's a reason why Democrats have wanted it so badly uh, and why Republicans have have not. So you, you do exist in the world, and you are subject to certainly the, the whims of Congress and, and the White House and uh, even more directly in college sports state houses. And I, I think that within some period of the next few years, the PRO Act or something like it uh, will eventually become the law because at some point 
the Democratic Party is just going to be pushed in that direction. But I don't know that it happens before they lose both houses of Congress um, or before they potentially lose the White House or before American democracy falls into an even sorrier state than it is now. Uh, maybe should have passed a few more things in the last year. Who knows? Yeah. You know, speaking of large parts of the country uh, losing and, and, and being left out of, uh, of, of, of major victories here, um, I want to talk a little bit about the actual national championship game. Hmm. That was a terrible segue. There's not really an easy way to move from, from labor to Alabama, Georgia. But um, Alex, are, are you excited about this? It, do, you, do you care? Is it a bummer that we're getting a rematch of two SEC teams again? Like, what, what, how do you feel about this actual game next week? I'm looking forward to it because I already like college football and I already work in college football. So I was going to watch the national championship game anyway. And it is unquestionable that these are the two best teams in college football by what appears to be a massive, massive margin this year that it's these two and then everyone else. So I think it'll be a great game. I think that in terms of the quality of play, it does not get a lot better than this in college football. Uh, but I totally empathize with people who are sick of this, who do not care to watch a game that was settled five weeks ago again. Um, and who wished for college football to be the kind of national sport that it has only fleetingly been historically, uh, and think that a hyper-regionalized SEC conflict resolution mechanism, as I think Parker Fleming called it last week, is not the way to go. I get that too. I, I totally understand it, and I, I think that there are fine reasons not to be excited about this, even though I will enjoy the game. Isn't it funny though? I mean, I, you know, we talk about inviting more parts of the country. Part of the reason the the title game is in Indianapolis was to kind of involve others, other you know fortunes. And now we have all these uh, Alabama and Georgia fans uh, discovering the uh, covered walkways of, of Indianapolis and the high prices that uh, they end up charging for uh, hotel rooms when, when something uh, a big event is in town. But I, I'm curious from that SEC title game to now. Uh, obviously, a lot's happened on the field, but you know. Between the lines, ultimately, what do you kind of see being the biggest change between that first meeting and the second meeting? Because we hear all the time, it's difficult to beat a team twice, but but can Alabama end up doing that? I think the, the most noticeable change might be that there's just a little bit less scoring in general because Nick Saban and Kirby Smart both butter their bread on defense. That's where their backgrounds are in the sport. They have armies of analysts who will be pouring over all kinds of things uh, heading into this game. And I, and I expect that the tinkering, um, and, and I think this is largely on Georgia's part dealing with Alabama is going to be pretty heavily geared toward not allowing Bryce Young and Jamison Williams to do whatever they want for the entirety of the game. Uh, on the Georgia side, I do think that it largely comes down to how Stetson Bennett plays and he has had a hell of a run there and his worst games have been against this team. He was awesome against Michigan. He was great against Michigan. He has clearly shown that on this team, he can be one of the most productive three or five quarterbacks in college football. And George is just sort of a weird animal at this point where at the end of the day, nobody's going to care if he does not get it right against Alabama. He's been picked five times in the two losses that he's had to them the last two years. He was among the more at fault Georgia players for the SEC championship unfolding the way that it did. And this is his moment and no one will care about that if he plays a great game here and if he you know, avoids interceptions and keeps the offense on schedule. So it's his show. And uh, I like kind of, I like some of the stuff that he said the other day that like, I am not putting this on myself to be like the savior for millions of people, which is good because that would probably drive someone to some very dark places. I hope he plays well because I, I think it's a great story if he does, but he will have to improve because Bama has certainly confused him multiple times uh, and caused the last two games to unfold in very similar ways. I mean, I know college football has changed, but if, if Jacob Coker can win a national ch championship, I, I think Stetson Bennett, the mailman can too, right? You know, well, this is the interesting thing. That was the, the old rule, right? Was that J a Jake Coker could win a national championship. And that was in 2015. And then the last, what, five national championship quarterbacks have been Deshaun Watson Jalen Hurts slash Tua Tungo-Vailoa, splitting duties the next year. Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, Mac Jones. So for the last five years, as college football has evolved into a more spread passing oriented game, the rule has changed. And you can't win one with Jake Coker or Cardale Jones or 
Blake Sims or Greg McElroy or I'm running AJ McCarron. I'm running out of Alabama quarterbacks to name uh, or even a Tim Tebow type player. It, it hasn't worked. You've had to have an A1 passer as your quarterback to win a college football title in the last five years in, in FBS. Stetson Bennett is having a hell of a career. I, he probably is not, you know, Trevor Lawrence or Joe Burrow, but I guess he has a chance to be to be that on on Monday, and we'll see. There, there would be something I think kind of fitting about Georgia winning this game in a year where one of the themes I think of this season were has been teams that were getting their ass kicked in longtime rivalries finally get winning that game. This was the year that Michigan beat Ohio State, BYU beat Utah, um, Oklahoma State. What? Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma. Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma. We can't use the same bedlam joke that we've been making for the last the last twelve years. And and um, you know, and Kansas beat Texas, long long long, long time rivals. So um, to to kind of end the season that way, I, I think would be would be kind of fitting. But uh, boy, I mean, beating beating a team twice in a season is hard, but beating Alabama once is is pretty damn hard too. And I don't know if there, I saw anything from the last game that made me think that things will go differently, but I'm wrong all the time. That's that's not why people read my newsletter or listen to this podcast for my, my, my football predictions. No, I expect it to be a closer game than it was. On the other hand, I tend to think that all of these playoff games are going to be closer than they actually turn out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they rarely, rarely do. Uh, you know, the last really competitive, tight playoff game that we had was... Oh, was it, when was it? I don't like twenty. Uh, was it the last time these two teams played? Yeah, I was yeah. Say, I, it was overtime. It's been, it's been a it's been a while. Um, and the cream of the crop tends to pretty quickly outclass everybody else. Uh, we're gonna find out just how evenly matched these two teams are. I'm actually not overwhelmingly worried for Georgia's part based on the SEC championship game, except for the Stetson Bennett thing. It's just if he plays great, they can win. Um. If Nick confuses him again and he throws a duck of an interception or two, then Alabama's going to win, and that will be very sad. And though though I kind of expressed some uh, Stetson Bennett skepticism earlier in the year, I would like him to win this game because I would rather you know eat some shit on my podcast about being wrong than watch Alabama win again. So that would be fun. I, man, I'm, I'm with you. Let me, let me, let me get chatted here on this because I, I actually wrote about this on Extra Parts earlier this week, and I was being – only a little bit serious, but the, you know, th- th- this is the, the, the big popular Twitter question is what are we going to do to get Alabama out of the paint? Because this is, this is what Alabama's sixth championship game in the playoff era. We only had like eight of these things. And there's been a Southern team um, in this, in this championship game every year, but one and, and typically two or three of these. Um, I can understand the argument of why this is less exciting to people in suburban Indianapolis where the, or uh, in Salt Lake City or in Phoenix or in New York. Is there anything that could be done short of just waiting for Nick Saban to get bored of this or like medically need to retire to institute a little bit of geographic parity into the semifinals? Like I know that we, yeah, if we, if we literally expand the playoff and we like force us to invite a Pac-12 team, Oregon will be here sometimes. But is there anything to to change up the semis or the actual finals? I don't think so, at least not anything that we should do. You, I know you wrote about this just today at Extra Points, but the one that the obvious way to increase parity in college football, the, the simplest thing that you could do would be to drastically cut down scholarship limits per team. If you had only 10 scholarship players per team, well, then great. Uh, Alabama would have a very small talent advantage over, over anybody else. But so then we're solving the problem of parity in college football of a lack of parity in college football by making it so that thousands fewer players can get scholarships to go to college. Um, you're creating a much worse problem than you're solving if you do something like that. So no, uh, college football has never had parity and I do not think that it's, that it's coming. Well, doesn't, and doesn't that, but doesn't that just kind of reinforce Nick Saban's dominance? Because he is the best coach. Like we, college football is for as much as we've, we've talked about, you know, 15 of the last, what, 16 champions coming from the South. Uh, you know, a lot of it, it comes down to Nick Saban being just that much of an outlier. 
you know, he is that good of a coach. And, yeah. and that's, you know, that's why when you go into this, this matchup, you know, it, it's not just Nick Saban versus a formal disciple. It's Nick Saban versus the rest of the sport. And he is that much better than just about everybody. He, he's figured it out, um, you know, much, much like Bill Belichick has at, at the pro level. You know, he, he's that much of a difference maker. And, and we've seen it with constant changes. I mean, look at, look at his coordinators right now. He's, he's got Bill O'Brien, Colin plays for him, and he might win back-to-back national championships with really probably, what, 20 different assistants in the last, what, three years? Yeah. So, okay, okay. Actual last question. You've probably done this on Split yeah. Some Duo. I know it's a talk radio bit, but you're, you're, you're both very smart, and so this I want to ask this. Nick Saban turns, what, 71 next year? What is the worst college football program that you can move him to where you would feel by year two they could, they could, they could win a national title? By year two, that's tough. But remember, we're in a we're in a portal world, so he's going to no, sign an amazing sure. class, and he's going to be able to turn over a third of that roster here by year two. By year two, I'm not sure I'm going anywhere outside the top six or eight programs by year two. Okay, what what, what about year three? Like in 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 three years, could he could win one at what West Virginia? Right? No, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, probably not. What about Probably you, Brian? Not. Maybe, uh, well, certainly more year three, but maybe Michigan State, you know, <laughs> to, to pull a name out of the hat. You know, I think that if you're talking about three years of, of roster building and uh, Nick Saban being Nick Saban, I, I think that could be uh, kind of maybe the cutoff line. I think, it's, like, I think it's it's funny that you say that. I think it might be like Michigan might be the cutoff line. Really? Like, I think you give him three years at Georgia, Clemson, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan, Auburn, LSU. We're talking like, you know, uh, top 10 to 12, maybe Penn State, top, top, Oregon, probably USC, certainly. I'm talking, there's probably 12, 12 or 14, maybe, as I think, as I think it through. That within three years, I would think he was winning a championship. But also, this is just a thought exercise, so I could be totally wrong. Yeah, maybe I'm crazy. Like, I, I would, I would honestly think more expansive than that. Because I think if you brought in Nick Saban, you're going to be able to then bring in coordinators, even at a place like NC State or West Virginia or I don't know. I I, I mean, like, shoot, guys, Michigan State won 10 games this year. <laughs> like, they're like the 11th team in the country. That's not really getting that far on the ledge, right? I mean, NC State's an, an interesting one, especially because of just the, the way the population has shifted in, in Carolina from a talent development standpoint has, has increased. That, that Maybe that is maybe a, a more interesting thing. But I, I feel like this entire thought exercise is based on like the NCAA video game when you used to go back and you used to take Toledo to the national championship. Like a lot of that, it, it's, it's like it was possible in your mind uh, in, in that NCAA video game. And, and you just think Nick Saban is that good. Um, but I, I think Alex is, is kind of right in terms of that cutoff line, in terms of actually winning the national time beating two elite teams in yeah. the team setup. Um, you know, yeah, you're, you're talking about not just roster development, but the entire program analyst. You're talking about hiring your facilities and, and getting those in line. You're talking about making sure that the alignment is there from school president on down in, in a three-year time span, as, as good as Nick Saban is. Um, you know, I think there is, is a bit of a limiting factor in terms of you, you almost have to be one of those kind of turnkey approaches. Um, now, if you're talking about 10 years, you know, I think that if you, if you expand things out, then you are talking about an NC State, a West Virginia, maybe something like that, to where you just kind of build that momentum. I mean, he's going to be 80 in 10 years years like it took three at alabama and alabama sucked but was alabama so i think that's, that, that's a good point i think they did lose to louisiana monroe that first year people do forget his, that historical blue bloods that suck you have the template so i don't know could he make could he make florida state a championship team in three years maybe maybe but i don't think i would go a lot lower than that um so basically what i'm hearing is nick saban take the nebraska job you coward and, exactly. and, and get, get, get us a chance to test this out. Alex, um, thanks so much for hopping on here. Real, real quick, uh, where can the good people find all this cool stuff you're doing? Because you're all over the place these days. I do bounce around to a lot of places, but if you are if you like going for two uh, and you've got room in your heart for more college football podcasting, I'm a co-host with Richard Johnson and Stephen Godfrey of Split Zone Duo. Uh, you can get that anywhere you get your podcasts, and we also have a subscription offering at splitzoneduo.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter. If you just search my name, Alex underscore Kirshner uh, with an S-H-N-E-R. All right. Hey, thanks, brother. I, I, I appreciate it. I, I love Split Zone Duo. I consider everything that we do at Extra Points to be a spiritual cousin of everything that Split Zone Duo and its previous podcast did when I sit down at my computer. That is the audience I imagine myself writing for. 
Um, so I, I completely uh, endorse it, recommend it. Um, thanks for hopping on and chatting with us. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll see you around the internet and on each other's shows later on. Wonderful to be with both of you. Have a great one. Um, I always like spending some time here chopping it up with Alex. We've been working, we worked together for a really long time and, and his worldview and the stuff that he, he produces is, is fascinating to me. I, I want to talk a little bit more about a couple of those things, but before we do, I do want to, uh, talk about our title sponsor, home field apparel. Um, Brian, do you have any home field apparel stuff? I do, and it, well, unfortunately, it's it's uh, somewhere around my house. But uh, yeah, I do, and uh, I mean, it's it's funny because I was just thinking as we were recording with with Alex, uh, if if I had been able to, uh, you know, kind of think of things a little bit ahead of time to where I could have worn my home field stuff, we could have all been in in home field and recording this podcast. But unfortunately, I, I, I got stuck with uh, what was clean and, and available. But a uh, ton of stuff uh, somewhere in my house uh, at, at some point. But yes, so and, and a growing collection, by the way. Yeah, I'm about to say what what I'm hearing here is basically just you this is a call for help for you saying that you need to buy more home field stuff because it's possible that it could all be dirty at some point um maybe much to my family member's chagrin i honestly don't think that's possible here in casa de brown because if i'm not wearing a uh like a suit like a shirt and tie for church or some kind of athletic director you or college sports connect video i am almost certainly wearing home field stuff my my office is in my basement I'm in Chicago. It gets a little bit cold, so I'm, I'm rocking a hoodie right now. I, I'm wearing the the beautiful vintage West Virginia uh, Homefield hoodie, and under that, I'm wearing a BYU T-shirt, also made by Homefield Apparel. And it's easy to do that because Homefield stuff one has a bunch of college logos on it, and it's all the cool college logos that uh, your your favorite school made in like 1954, and then they decided they were too funny and too interesting and unique, and so they buried them in the vaults. And you never saw them again. So you can uh, you get all these cool, uh, unique vintage designs, and it is the most comfortable clothes that I've ever worn. Whether that is ho- uh, t-shirts, whether that's hoodies, whether that's joggers with the uh, the the depressed Yukon Husky on the side. Um, all of those things, they're, they're, they are the most comfortable work from home clothes I think you can find. Uh, they also produce the extra points t-shirts. So if you wanted the, the old timey football player carrying a big bag of money, you can get that at home field apparel as well. They, um, have just about every division one or FBS program, excuse me, every power five program, a lot of, 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 uh, G five, a lot of FCS schools. They're about to start big noon, Saturday, big new Saturday season three. So if you are a fan of maybe some Power 5 college basketball-oriented schools that are not currently on home fields, maybe some in the Big Ten, maybe some in the ACC, uh, those are coming. And you make, make sure you can go to homefieldapparel.com so you don't miss those new shirts. Um, but you don't have to pay full price because if you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't bought one of these one, one of these shirts, one of these hoodies, use promo code EXTRAPOINTS. It's all one word and get 15% off your order, whether you're buying a home uh, extra point shirt, which I think you need, some stickers, a hoodie, some sweatpants, any of that extra points at, from homefieldapparel.com, save 15%, help support our friends, uh, help support our show. Uh, Homefield Apparel, of course, headquartered in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where the college football playoff is going to be. It is. Um, the NCAA, NCAA convention is there uh, as well in a couple of weeks, so it's uh, a busy time for the home field crew. And so, if you if you do want to be you know strutting around, you know if you're in, in going to either of those two things, uh, you know place your order now, and you you might uh, end up getting it just in time. Yeah, they they do have both Alabama and Georgia stuff. Um, so if you want to go to the championship game wearing a T-shirt of an adorable cartoon dog golfing, which I think is maybe the most Georgia thing you possibly can. Homefieldapparel.com. Um, I think I share Alex's opinion here that this should be a high-level college football game, and it's the two best teams in the country. I don't really know who's going to win, and I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to watch it, and I'm probably going to like it unless it ends up being like a 49-10 sort of thing, but it would be a little bit more fun if maybe there was somebody that wasn't Georgia playing. I would probably be more excited if this, as weird as this sounds, I think it'd be, I'd be more excited personally if this was Michigan. Um, just because it would, I would have a much more clearly defined rooting interest. Um, maybe we'll get that next year. Uh, may, may, maybe there'll be somebody that's not Alabama that will be in this game. 
Well, good, good, good luck thinking that. I mean, I, <laughs> honestly, I think, you know, I, I love high level college football no matter what. So I'm, I'm obviously all in, uh, was at this, this first meeting, um, when, when this happened in the, in the championship game. And I just remember uh, sweating because I had to write a, a deadline gamer. And, uh, yeah. let me tell you when it goes to overtime in the national championship game, there's, uh, there, there, there's a little bit of sweat going on when you, when you're trying to pound out those words to, to get that deadline gamer going on, especially when there's a walk-off, uh, touchdown involved. But I, I don't think we're, we're going to get a thriller like that but I, I do think we're going to get a competitive game just you know by the nature of, of rematches you know i think uh, it, it's going to be hard for uh, stetson bennett to to frankly play like he did in, in that first meeting and i think you're going to get something what maybe not quite what we saw in the semifinal game but a little bit closer uh to that i, I think you know you look at uh to, to me I, I think the the key in this one is just along the trenches can that Alabama offensive line block Georgia's defensive line uh, like they did in, in that first meeting are we going to continue to get those quick passes out of Bryce Young and uh, you know frankly you know who, who's going to stop the run uh, because I think both these teams understand uh, that this game is going to be won uh, in terms of who can control that clock who can control the pace and uh, I think it is it, it's a fascinating matchup in, in in that these are two clearly the best teams that uh, we saw in college football throughout the season they're meeting in the championship game I don't know if you can ask for much more I know you want you want you want some some diversity in terms of the actual team name on there but uh you strip off those alabama and georgia logos i think we're getting a, a pretty good football game uh between two of the best that we've seen in this season i'm sure it'll be great i'm sure it'll be great listen i'm i'm, I'm a big baby maybe i don't maybe I, I recognize that vegetables are good for me and 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 vegetables are, are the highest you know level thing i could put into my body um sometimes i want pizza rolls and and i i, I am i am a, a person who um Right. I, I, I love watching the Mayo Bowl. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm OK watching some six and six stupidness. I want to see somebody commit two safeties in a game. Uh, I, I want to see drunk football like <laughs> the, the, the fourth quarter of the Rose Bowl where everyone kind of forgets how to play defense. And it was, you know, slappers only. And that's not what we're going to see in this championship game. That's fine. Some of you can eat your vegetables and that's great. And I'll read all your columns about it. I'm still going to watch this, too. Um, I just admit. I don't have as sophisticated of a football palette as all of you. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about this and a bunch of other interesting and exciting things coming up here on Extra Points and D1 Ticker and Collegiate Sports Connect and everywhere within the uh, D1 Ticker family about what's happening at this game, about the Constitutional Convention, about recruiting, uh, and uh, a bunch more. So you can find all of that at our respective websites and in the show notes. Um, Brian, is there anything else you want to make sure people know about? No, just follow me on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher. Plenty of great content coming along on that feed. And uh, yeah, lots of thoughts uh, coming around this title game and, and much more because it is an active period, not just in, in college football, but college athletics in general uh, across the board. There, there's a lot going on. So there's, there's a lot on that feed uh, coming out as well. That's true. You can find me at Matt Brown EP on Twitter. You can find Extra Points at extrapointsmb.com. You can find us on Reddit at slash r extrapointsmb. Uh, we're on Instagram too. I don't know if there's anywhere else where you could possibly need us. You could DM me for my cell phone, I guess. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch up with you next week.